Well, welcome. As, uh, as Joe said, my name is Jeff Francian, and uh, my family and I are members here at All Saints, and I'm also a pastoral intern here. And I just have to begin by saying what a joy it is to be here with you this morning. It's a lot cooler than it said it was going to be. Hopefully the, the weather permits. I, want to, I also wanted to say what a joy it is to serve you with the words of our Lord as the body of Christ. And uh, as Joe said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 48 this morning. And when Pastor Brad asked me to preach, uh, he, he asked if I wanted to continue going in Ezra and Nehemiah or do a standalone sermon. And uh, I've been thinking about the Psalms for a while, and in particular this Psalm, and it's become uh, increasingly beautiful to me. Um, and it's also intimately connected to the theme that we've been looking at in Ezra and Nehemiah, the theme of the temple and the city of God. And so, if you will, let's read Psalm 48 together, and then we'll pray and ask God for his help here this morning. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic and they took flight. Trembling took hold of them there, as of a woman, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels or her palaces that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for gathering us here together as your people, that you call us out of a chaotic world each week to climb a mountain, as it were, Mount Zion. And we pray that as we climb that mountain this morning, that you would heal us, that you would make us new, but most importantly, that you would fix our eyes on Christ and make us more and more like him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we read, the author of this psalm is not actually David, to whom most of the psalms are attributed. It's actually a group of young men named the sons of Korah, and you can read about them in passages like 1 Chronicles 9. And honestly, uh, they, are, they were Israel's liturgical and musical experts, um, not too much different than our friends up here. Uh, every, what they would do is they would create music for special occasions for Israel's worship. Now, when David captured Jerusalem 
At the beginning of the monarchy, the city was called the Fortress of Zion, or the City of David. Originally, the phrase Zion was normally used in reference to parts of the city, because it was a large city. Um, but also, it was, referred, it was used sometimes to refer to the inhabitants of the city, which makes sense because the people of a city often make up that city's character. But does Mount Zion still carry the same meaning for us? Kind of. But as Christians, it's important that we understand that every aspect of the Old Testament has to be understood in light of the new. And one New Testament book that helps us do that, probably better than any other, is the book of Hebrews. And we're going to spend some time in there. So if, you, if you'd like to follow along, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. And as we're turning there, as you're turning there, I'm going to make a brief detour in 1 Peter. And I want to, I want to make a, a brief detour because Peter really helps us understand how do we understand the Old Testament in light of the New And specifically, what these prophets were thinking about when they were prophesying, or what these sons of Korah were thinking about. He begins his first epistle by talking about this great salvation that we've all received. And then he says, concerning this salvation, the the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that's ours, searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, that's the Holy Spirit, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. In other words, that as these sons of Korah are are writing these songs about Mount Zion, they know that it's true, and yet they're saying things like, this city will never be moved. And yet we know from history that Jerusalem was conquered more than once, that the temple was destroyed more than once. And so they're wondering, what is the reality? What's the real thing? What is the real Mount Zion? Well, it says that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, that's us, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So now, Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews comes and he's going to compare two mountains. We're going to read 18 through 24. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Now he's referencing Mount Sinai. All those quotations are from, I'm, I'm sorry, Mount Sinai, and, which is a representation of the law. Indeed, so terrible and terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood 
that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now these epistles, originally, not everybody had their own epistles. They would have been read aloud when the church was gathered together as the covenant community. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that do you want to know where to meet with God? Do you want to know what God's address is on earth? It's right here. It's in a faithful liturgy. It's where Christ is preached and the scriptures are opened. And it's where we dine with Christ at his table. And the amazing truth is that when we gather together on the Lord's day, we're actually climbing a mountain. So let's look more closely at this beautiful mountain. The psalm begins with the most basic of Christian confessions. Great is the Lord. But also shows the intimate connection between God and his people in the next line. And greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And this brings us to a beautiful truth. When someone believes the gospel and is baptized, they quite literally become a new creation. And that new creaturely reality has very special distinctives that help us see both ourselves, the world, and the church quite differently. And that leads us to the claim found in verse 2. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Here's why. Because everything that the world so desperately longs for Everything is found only, ultimately, and fully right here. And these opening lines give us a perfect example. Of all the difficulties that humanity has faced, one of the greatest, and, and, or, or worst, I guess you should say, that has plagued us since the fall is our ability to live in harmony with one another. How do we live together and find unity when we're all so different. In fact, if you pull out a quarter, which are, are pretty uh, rare these days, I hear, there's a Latin phrase on the front that says e pluribus unum, which means out of the many, one. And this was actually a distinct and chief property for the plan of America at its founding. Or consider the university. Universities were originally created to be a place where the unified goal of increased understanding and knowledge about the world was to be accomplished through the diversity of thought of its members. Uni, unity, in diversity, university. Boy, how things have changed, sadly. The reason for this innate desire is none other than the fact that we were created in the image of a God who was both one and a community of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One of the chief aspects of our new creation identity is it makes us what we ought to have been all along, true image bearers of our triune God. And this is so important to understand, that a main aspect of your new creation identity is that you are not anymore simply an individual but a vital member of a vibrant community. In other words, you are no more yourself, your true self, than when you are here. 
The Bible uses several metaphors to describe this, and we heard one this morning, um, which is that we're a body with a head and many members, and yet one body. Another metaphor is one that is specifically relevant to what we're talking about today is that of a temple. We heard a couple weeks ago about the joy when the foundation of that temple was laid. Well, Peter tells us that the foundation of the church is the preaching of those prophets and apostles. And the chief cornerstone of that temple is none other than Christ himself. And as living stones in that temple, we take on that same image of that chief cornerstone as we're being built up into a into a dwelling place for God. It also comes along with some truly astounding promises. There's one that captures all the rest, I think. The promise is found in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, and it says this. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas. And the reason he's saying that is because some were going, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas. And he says, we're all yours. We're all your servants because of Christ. But then he goes on, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Do you want to know why Mount Zion is the joy of all the earth? Because when you belong to this city, all things are yours, including God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus goes to great lengths to communicate not just his nearness to us, but his intimate communion and union with his people. There's a story in Acts 9 where in, in history, we're at the place where Jesus has already died. He was crucified publicly. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. And then he ascended into heaven. And his followers are now turning the world upside down, and not a lot of people like that. And so Saul of Tarsus is one of these people that's not very happy, and he's on his way to persecute, to arrest, and eventually kill these Christians. Well, our Lord appears to him on that road to Damascus, and you would think that he said, he would say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these Christians? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these believers? He says, none of that. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's unbelievable how he talks about us. Through faith and because of the bond of the Holy Spirit, we are, we are so intimately connected to the risen Lord than we could ever imagine. He gives us his identity as the true image of the invisible God, and the Christian life is about growing up into that identity. Well, the psalmist closes this stanza with the proclamation that within her citadels, within her palaces, In reality, in our churches, God has made himself known as a fortress. When our wildly autonomous culture where everyone seems to make their own rules for life, people also love to make up their own gods. But this is not new. 
One of my favorite quotes from John Calvin's Institutes highlights this universal truth. He says, like water gushing forth from a large and copious spring. So imagine driving up to McCall and and seeing that, that river just gushing forth. He says, like that, immense crowds of gods have issued forth from the human mind. Every man giving himself full license and devising some peculiar form of divinity to meet his own views. Institutions have been under attack for a while now, and the church is no different. And I don't know if you've heard this, you may have, but I've heard this. Um, I've heard friends who are not Christians say, well, God is everywhere, and um, I can experience God, in fact, more on, when I'm up camping in the mountains or when I'm at the beach than when I'm gathered in a building with some people and standing and sitting and reading and reciting. Well, he is everywhere, and, and you can encounter him, but he's not everywhere in the same way. He doesn't promise to be a fortress when you're on a mountain camping, and he doesn't promise to be a fortress when we're at the beach. He promises to be a fortress here and only here. What a fortress we have. Well, as we continue further down the psalm, we encounter a different beauty of this city. And as we encounter Israel in in Scripture, we see a people who are constantly dealing with enemies on every side. As a matter of fact, when Jacob, who is uh, in this period of his life, renamed Israel, he's fleeing from his own brother, Esau. Israel is in constant need of a fortress. Now, this song takes several glimpses of Israel's history and creates a montage of sorts to create a scene of how God saves his people. The language, uh, by the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Trembling took hold of them there. They're describing different scenes of Israel's history. And the theme of Israel's history is picked up in the Psalter as well. In fact, in Psalm 2, these very same kings are warned. We hear the warning that goes out to them. Listen. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying against his anointed saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us." He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then as God always does, because he is so kind and patient and long-suffering with us, he warns them and says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Did you catch the ending of that psalm? It's kind of weird if you think about it. He says that this king's wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are those who take refuge in him. The source of the wrath is also the source of refuge. How is that so? Well, it depends on who he comes in contact with. In his sermon, The Excellency of Christ, Jonathan Edwards uh, is preaching on Revelation chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And it's one of my favorite sermons of all times. And he's talking about how Christ has what, what Edwards calls diverse excellencies. And what, he's, what he can't understand is how this one man is not just the greatest, not just the strongest, not just the most powerful, but that he becomes the lowest and the weakest and the most despised. How does he hold these two things together? Well, towards the end of the sermon, he recounts that on the last day, when God, the judge of all the earth, who can only do right, And who will judge the earth in righteousness. On that day that these diverse excellencies will be put on full display. Listen what he says. He says on that day. Above all other times. Jesus will appear as the lion of the tribe of Judah. In infinite glory and majesty. When he shall come in the glory of his father. With all the holy angels. And the earth shall tremble before him. The hills shall melt. This is he that shall sit on a great white throne, before whose face the earth and heaven shall flee away. He will then appear, he will then appear the most dreadful and amazing manner to the wicked. The the devils tremble at the thought of that appearance. And I want to stop real quick. One One of the most comedic, parts of the Gospels, and it really is a funny aspect of the Gospels, is that Jesus is walking around, he's healing people, he's doing miracles, he's fulfilling every prophecy, and no one, including his disciples oftentimes, know who he is, except for one group. Who's the one group that knows who Jesus is? It's the demons. And every time they see him, not only do they know who he is, they give him all the right names. They go, you're the son of David, but they're trembling when they see him. They go, son of David, please just don't, don't have mercy. We'll do whatever. Just don't, we don't want to see you. They tremble at his face. The devils tremble at the thought of that appearance. And when it shall be, the kings and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, shall hide themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and shall cry to the mountains, and the rocks of the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the face and the wrath of the Lamb. And none can declare or conceive of the amazing manifestations of wrath in which he will appear towards these, or the trembling and astonishment, the shrieking and gnashing of teeth with which they shall stand before his judgment seat and receive the terrible sentence of his wrath. And yet, he will at the same time appear as a lamb to his saints. He will receive them as friends and brethren, treating them with infinite mildness and love. There shall be nothing in him terrible to them, 
but, he, but towards them he will clothe himself wholly with sweetness and mildness and endearment. The church shall then be admitted to be his bride, and that will be her wedding day. The saints shall all be sweetly invited to come with him to inherit the kingdom and reign, with, and reign in it with him to all eternity. Friends, the insanity, the wickedness, and the evil that we see all around us, and, and even in the past two weeks, is devastating. And we know in our bones that sin must be dealt with. Evil must be banished, and wickedness must, must be punished. Do you want to know why Mount Zion is the joy of all the earth? Because here and only here will cosmic justice be accomplished. No, nowhere else. We have earthly courts that often, thank God, get justice right, and sometimes they get it wrong. Do you want to know that true justice will one day be accomplished? Well, you're in the right place because true justice is only found in Mount Zion because this is the only truly just king who reigns here. Indeed, as we read in verse 11 of our psalm, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Well, the closing stanza of this psalm gives one of my favorite commands in all of Scripture. And it may sound kind of weird, though, so let's read it again. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her, her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. Now, if the reality of this psalm is about the church, then this is a command to be in and among the church. It is a call to robust, beautiful, and life-giving Christian community. The reality is, is that you are the towers. You are the ramparts. You are the palaces. And I think this is true of everybody, but I think that it especially pertains to the older and the elderly among us. The world oftentimes tends to treat the elderly with disdain, not in the church. The world says that getting old is bad, but not God. Proverbs 16:31, "Gray hair is a crown of glory, and it is earned by a righteous life." Proverbs 20:29, 20, "The glory of young men is in their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair." Last week, we celebrated the wedding anniversary of a couple, uh, the 68th wedding anniversary of a couple. That is glory. Okay, And that's why we couldn't even hold our applause in. Us younger people, we need you desperately. We need your wisdom because you've been walking with the Lord much longer than we have. And we need your stories about God's faithfulness in the same trials that we're going to face and have faced. We need heroes like you to look up to to show us the long path of faithfulness that the Lord requires. You are indispensable sources of life, hope, 
joy, and courage. And all of us are on different paths and different degrees of sanctification and growth. And we're all walking towers that need to be admired by other walking towers. When someone hears the phrase discipleship, I don't know if if you would agree with me, but at least in my life, um, I think of, in terms of my, my, my Christian life, and I always think of somebody who grabs a book and a pen and finds a mentor, and then you go and meet with them once a week, and you go through that book together. And there's nothing wrong with that, but in terms of Christian discipleship, it's not even close to the whole picture. I can tell you that personally, in my, in my own Christian walk, most of the people who have discipled me and my family to this day, sadly, I need to do a better job of telling them, have no idea. Men discipled me on what fatherhood looks like by inviting me into their home and I got to watch them being faithful dads. Women discipled my wife by opening their homes up to the church and serving, uh, preparing meals and serving the church so that we could gather and worship and grow in our community. My kids have been discipled by older kids who have shown them what it looks like to be an obedient son or daughter. And these lessons are far more impacting, far more vivid, and far more lasting and formative than any book we could ever read. Now, you may be saying to yourself, this guy has his head in the clouds. Has he ever even really seen how bad the church can look? How ugly it can get? This may seem pretty idealistic, which, to be honest, is definitely a temptation of mine. However, we need to be reminded of a couple things. One is that we do not live by sight, but by faith. And God graciously tells us that there's things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. But still, if the church is made up of living stones, often these stones can lose their luster or their brightness. Especially in the age of the internet, it is so easy to act like the problem is somewhere out there. But each one of us is responsible in one sense as, we, as the Holy Spirit works with us for our own brightness and our own luster. And God wants to make you shine brighter than any jewel or diamond than you could ever possibly imagine. And I want to leave you with a suggestion on how to brighten yourself up. Would you turn to Colossians 3 with me? Paul, as he's writing to this church in Colossae, he's, uh, he tells them that if they want to become brighter, they need to put on new clothes. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint Against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word, and this is where it gets very specific and very practical. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts towards God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, we will become brighter, more beautiful living stones if we make this our daily bread. A friend of mine sent me a a screenshot this week of a tweet, and then there was a quote of that tweet. And it's from a pastor and an author, uh, pretty well known, the first one. And he says, his first tweet is, is pretty devastating. He says this, In the next two years, there will be a large exodus of pastors from the pastorate. Every pastor I talk to is exhausted and to a degree frustrated. Theological and ideological differences between pastor and parishioner is increasing. It's not sustainable. And another pastor quotes that tweet and says, I worry about this too. One of the scariest things about COVID is that it has accelerated the already troubling tendency of Christians to be shaped more by online life and its partisan ideological ecosystem than by church life and its practices. If there's one thing that will make the church not shine like it should, it's division. And if there's one thing that the world needs to see in our churches is love that covers over a multitude of sins. May God help us to make Colossians 3, 12 through 17 a reality in our daily lives in this church. Well, I want to close with one last very important thought, which comes from the final words of our psalm that we're looking at today. In the, he, uh, in the, in the, in the ESV, the psalm closes with the line, He will guide us forever. However, in the Hebrew, it can actually read, he will guide us beyond death. Death has been the forefront in all of our minds lately, probably more than ever before. And I think it's been a shock to our system. And I think the reason is, is because more than probably any time in history, we have desperately been trying to hide from death. We are in one of the most unique periods in history that we virtually removed death from life. Graveyards no longer surround churches. We have celebrations now instead of funerals. And long biological life is considered the chief end no matter how that life is spent. The fear of death is real. And the reality of death is real. And here's the reality. You will die. I will die. Unless Jesus returns before then, we're going to die. But I've found that personally, as I've struggled with my own fear of death, which has been difficult, I've found that the more and more I press into Scripture and I hear what God says about death, the weaker it becomes. And one of the most beautiful benefits of our salvation that we rarely hear talked about is not just that Christ has conquered and manhandled death, 
But Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this, since the children therefore share in flesh and blood, since we have bodies, the second person of the Trinity took on a body. He likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death is slavery. And Jesus came to break those chains. He died to deliver you from the fear of death. And this psalm tells us that when it's our time to die, for whatever the reason, whatever the cause, we're not alone. In fact, we have a tour guide. Christ, the one who died and rose from the dead, guides us right through death into the resurrection where we will receive new bodies just like his new resurrected body and we'll dwell in a renewed earth with very physical life, real life bodies free from disease, free from fear and free from sin and free from death. Do you want to know why Mount Zion is the joy of all the earth? Because that perfect world that we all long for so deeply is on its way for the inhabitants of this city. And the church is a foretaste of that world. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us right back to the beginning of our psalm, where we can proclaim with the psalmist, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Amen.